On a dark winter day, not much more than 30 years ago, the Kanath overran the great library in Kari Tenor and killed all the Darai that were unfortunate to have their placement there. In the days that followed, they hunted our brothers that were wandering the worlds and killed them too. Why, we do not know, and I forgive you for not knowing this story at all. It is one that the Kanath are not keen to tell, and they have kept everything surrounding that day in the darkest corner of knowledge. Since the earliest of times, the Darai have travelled the worlds with one single purpose, to gather stories, fables and historical facts in order to preserve the memory of man and adhere to one simple rule, to note down any story we encounter without judgment, prejudice or adjustment. We have never been a threat to any king nor an enemy of any people. So why we were singled out to die is a question that has clouded the minds of the few of us that survived. Here, in the second library that we have carved into the ancient hills of Danarchia, our spirits have only been kept afloat by a single rumour, that the elder, Navithian, survived the attack on the great library and that the most important book of all, the Dafar, was safe in his hands. For decades we have searched in secret, but there's been no trace of the Dafar or, indeed, of him, until half a tear ago. Word reached us that an old man had been found in a cave in the Banat Valley and that he had an unusual chain around his neck. We sent out brothers to lay eyes on him, and when they returned, they had indeed the elder of the Darai, the holder of the hands, with them. He was old, near blind, and not able to fathom what was happening to him or who we were. But, as voices from Helgoth have grown in strength and anger, I was compelled to lift the veil of mystery that lays heavy upon our order. I am Pathar of the Darai, and I break ink in this notebook to recount our meeting. So began Navithian. I am Navithian, the elder of the Darai, the last holder of the hands, and you, my foreign friend, have found me in dark times. My being has harvested so many years beyond expectation that my limbs have lost their use and everything but words tastes like dust in my mouth. What little I can now see has the hue of clouded milk forced from an old goat and my troubled mind can no longer grasp the future but only find rest in what was. In all honesty I confess I have speculated of late which would find me first. The faculty... Nardeth, or someone like you. I am glad it was you, and with whatever ability I can muster from this bed to which I am now bound, I will answer your question and tell you all I remember from that last day in the great library at Kari Tenor. Only, I ask you to be ever mindful that I am but an old fool, whose memory has played more tricks on him than he would care to admit. What I did just moments ago seem as distant as my adventures in the time when my years were only a score or two. Yet those memories are clear as the sky over Raglath and the cloudless isle, while yesterday is written on paper as dark as the mines in the ancient home of the North Kings. Some days I find myself silent from dusk till dawn, unable to recount even the most simple of thoughts. On others, my speech flows like a babbling brook, trying to keep up with my thoughts that rush like a river to the sea, lest I get lost in the branches of the delta before it reaches its destination, 
like now, in this simple underground chamber. Yes, unless my nose too plays tricks on me, I am sure we are underground. Why, I, I do not know. It seems ironic to me that when we are in possession of all our senses, we do not use them to their full potential, the sum not being bigger than its parts. It is only when we lose one or more that we realise how much more capable the others are. I am sorry, my foreign friend, I shall begin, but do forgive that having been surrounded for most of my life by the best written language in the world has not bettered my own ability to account. You see, my duty as holder of the hands was to keep order in the great library at Kari Tenor, not to fill it. I'm afraid that I was not chosen by my peers for my eloquence or rhetorical ability, but for my discipline, a gift that too is taken away from me in my old age. But for you, I will cast that aside and begin. Well, the first sign of danger I noticed on that fateful day was a commotion by the bronze doors at the furthest end of the 16th corridor in the West Wing that I had been inspecting. I had just returned a notebook by Cartifact the Longboned that, among other odd anecdotes, contained the bewildering story of Liggywill and her giant hen that has always baffled me. Liggywill had a small little hen, you see, and it laid very small little eggs. I wish my hen was bigger so it could lay bigger eggs. Liggywill had moaned over her meagre supper one night, and the story goes that the very next day she found a sack of grain discarded on the road, and when she fed the grain to her hen, it began to grow. With the growth came bigger eggs. The first day they were the size of a fist. The second day they were so big that you needed two hands to hold them, and quickly Liggywill needed both her sisters to carry them. Soon, the hen was so big that Liggywill moved it from the pen to the house she shared with her sisters, and still the hen kept growing and the eggs kept getting bigger. That's enough now, Liggywill, said the oldest sister. We three can live of these eggs for weeks. But Liggywill kept feeding her hen, for, as she said to her sisters, if the hen gets big enough, it will lay the biggest eggs in the land, and everyone will wonder at our hen, and we will be sent for by the king and taken to the palace to show our fable hen to the court, and we will be celebrated and fed like royalty and never know famine ever again. The very next day, the hen's head burst through the roof of the house, and the other end laid an egg so big that it crushed Liggywill and drowned her sisters in the yolk. And the story ends there. Bewildering, do you not think? Why am I telling you about Liggywill? I reminded him that he was about to tell me of that night in the great library, and that he had heard a noise behind him. Note, find link between Liggywill and her giant hen and the man who stood on a thousand needles from shelf 17 in the lower corridor. Ah, yes, I had read her story in Cartifact's notebook that I was returning to its rightful place in the 16th corridor. Still, half thinking of the story, I turned and walked toward the disturbance, but was brutally stopped in my step by a sudden glint of a light in a blade. It was swiftly followed by a cascade of blood erupting like a dark fountain from one of my brothers. I think it was Naliano, the first to fall. Poor man. He was a gentle soul who would never do anything that could upset or hurt others. I once saw him rescue a cat from the jaws of a fox, and when the cat then gave chase to a mouse, he saved the mouse, and 
then buried his head in his hands and wept like a child when the mouse ate an earthworm. It was when he fell to the ground that I saw the advancing red-plumed helmets. I then knew that the faculty had made their move and that my world would never be the same. What I did not know was whether I would even survive this day. But before I tell you my story and, and bore you with yet more complaints about the inevitable price we have to pay for the gift of a long life, I feel I must tell you of the very beginning. I know it might seem foolish and irrelevant, but as you are not from Alathia, I feel that you need to know our stories to better understand. I beg you to humour an old man. I swear by my elder chain to make haste. He motioned me to hand him the simple clay cup that had been placed near him on a small wooden table. As he drained the last of the water, I contemplated asking him to stay with the events of that night, but... As so many of the first stories had been lost that very same night, I thought it would be wise to let him recount the old tales. The light from the small oil lamp hanging from the ceiling in its brass fitting enhanced every crevice in the old man's face, and I knew that every single one held a story or a secret from a long life. If I could but read the story behind each of them and make them live again in my humble notebook. So... In the time beyond the memory of man, there was only the all. Everything and everyone was in the all, and the all was everything and everyone. Only the gods, however, could be seen in the all. And they were at war, as the great god Quarath had challenged his peers to combat, and the all was chaos. Quarath had two children, Nerith and Nardeth, and the twins were the biggest joy he had ever known. His wife, Philitna, who had given him this joy, was the most beautiful god the all had ever seen, and he loved her beyond all things living. And now you might think, oh, I see the reason why there was battle between Quarath and the other gods. One of the other gods had grown jealous of her. But you, just like he, would be mistaken. The god above them all was called Grong and his white palace, Tenor, was always the centre for councils, celebrations and parties that would last for years. After all, there was not much for the gods to do in the all, and they would not let a feast end until there was something more important to do. During these parties, Elidna would always be the centre of attention, as her beauty outshone god and goddess alike in the great halls of Grong. Not a moment would pass where less than two scores of eyes would be on her fair countenance, and the lips beneath those eyes would rest for as long as the look would last. Elidna was aware of the attention, and it seemed as though her features would become even fairer with each glance from the gods. But she also was aware that when it came to wisdom, the other gods would rest their ears on the crow-like goddess Piara, who was but a mere shadow compared to the radiant Elidna, just like they rested their eyes on her. During one feast, Gron called the main gods to council, and when Piara walked to his side, she drew many a look away from Elidna. That was when the poison we call jealousy was first brewed. It flowed through the heart and mind of Elidna, and she became bent on the destruction of Piara. As with all who are and will be affected by this poison, she could no longer remain content with the advantage she held in one attribute, but could only focus on what her perceived rival held in another. 
She waited till her husband was away on a hunting trip and then singled out the most susceptible of the gods. His name was Barrett, and his mind was as weak as his body was strong. Elidna had been told that he was logging timber in the forests and that he would take his breaks near the tranquil pool. And so she removed her clothing and swam into the pool, pretending to come across Barrett by chance on her daily swim. Being naked, she had no trouble attracting his attention, and she filled him with stories of how tedious her marriage to Quarreth was and how she hated his weakness. But Barrett knew of no such weakness. To him, Quarreth was one of the mightiest of the gods. So, as his eyes feasted on Elitna's body, his mouth asked what the weakness was. He will not avenge me, the goddess replied. She then told Barad how the crow Piara had wronged her in the ears of Gron, but that her husband refused to do what was just. I would willingly give myself to anyone who would do right for me and be silent of the deed, she said with a sigh as she left Barad alone by the pool. Now, a clever god would have sought proof of such story, but, as I told you earlier, Barrett was not such a god and therefore, driven more by the scepter under his loincloth than the walnut inside his skull, he slew Piara the selfsame night. And as the life drained from her rival, Elidna took Barrett to her bed and made good of her promise. But when Barrett was in the grip of ecstasy, she also laid a spell on him that would seal his lips forever. You might think that this was quite clever of Elidna, but you, like she, would be mistaken. Not only did Barad not have the ability to cover up his deed, and the other gods were soon on to him, but neither, when they caught him, and Gron had used all his might to lift the spell, did he possess the ability to lie about what had happened, and more importantly, why it had happened. And the other gods made swift work of justice. Gron exiled Barrett to the cold beyond the all, as he, unlike Barrett, was wise enough to see that the simple god had been a pawn in a greater game. He then sentenced Elitna to endure the same fate as she had orchestrated for poor Piara, and Nidath, the blind god of death, swung his black sword before Elitna could enchant Gron's eyes with her beauty. But when Quarth returned and heard of what had happened to his wife, he flew into a rage so ferocious that three gods died just by standing too close to him. Gron tried to reason with his grief-stricken brother, but not even Barrett's confession could soothe Quarth's blackened mind, and he challenged all the other gods and goddesses to combat. And so, my foreign friend, we return to Quarov standing in the all with his battle sword chipped and bloodied. One by one he had sent the other gods to the realm beyond what can be seen, and with each victory he had grown in strength. He now stood in his pitch-black armour at the centre of the all, so powerful that he drew everything toward him. Nor light nor element could escape his grasp, and the all fell silent and grew dark as he consumed everything within it. When victory was finally his, he looked down at his children with the only flicker of love that was left in him. But as with all parents, Quarath favoured one of his children more than the other. Only slightly, you understand, but it was enough for Nardeth to be aware of. He had his ill temper from his father and his jealous mind from his mother. It was a very powerful combination, as you can imagine.
While Nirith was fair and mild, Nardeth was dark and brutal, and when he detected a hint of a smile as his father's gaze left his son and found rest on his daughter, he flew into a rage that much rivalled his father's. Nardeth grabbed an axe strapped to Quarath's armour and landed the first strike. An almighty roar echoed through the all as father and son clashed. Such was the ferocity with which they attacked and counterattacked that they were soon enveloped in a whirling sphere of pulsating fire that lasted for a whole time. But when Nardev finally found a way through his father's defences, he landed a blow that made the sphere burst like a weak sheep's bladder with fermented Corinian wine, and a maelstrom of fire and sparks spread across the all faster than clouds scattered by the winds of the storm islands. And when the all fell silent once again, Quarath lay mortally wounded by Nardeth's feet. The only sound to be heard in the all was Nereth's tears shattering like small spheres of the purest glass as they hit the ground. What have you done, my brother? She asked with a voice that drew a cry of utter despair from the tallest of mountains and the hardest of stones. Nereth knelt down by her father's side, and brushed the blood and the sweat from his brow, and kissed his bruised forehead. With a final effort, Quarath opened his eyes and looked at his beloved daughter. I was once the god of life, he said with trembling lips. Make me that again, and my love for you shall live forever. And then his last breath left him. Nereth then took his heart, breathed fire into it, and placed it in the sky as a bright burning star to bring warmth to the all. She bent and shaped his remains, covered in green and blue marks from the bruising battle, into a ball. She placed it at the centre of the all and called it an earth. Then she caught her father's last breath and created the first of the earth people and called them Mari, the breath. And the breath was so plentiful that there were enough for twenty-seven Mari, and because that last breath had been freed of fear and full of love, the Mari were immortal. Having fulfilled her father's dying wish, Nirith then turned to Nardeth with a deep sadness in her eyes. You shall forever walk in the shadow of the earth, and I in the light, and we shall never see each other ever again, she said, and turned her back on the brother whom she once loved more than life itself. Stricken by guilt and regret, Nardeth gathered his father's black armour and brought it to the shadows of the earth. There he began to shape it into the halls of the underworld. But as he worked on the dark side of the earth, he struggled to see what he was doing. Then he noticed that his tears, full of sorrow and longing for his sister, were inhabited by a pale light. He harvested one of them and placed it in the dark sky above to bring a little brightness to the shadows. But the tear slowly leaked, and so, when there was almost nothing left, Nardeth would replenish it with another, thus always keeping the light in the darkness. When the halls of the underworld finally stood finished, Nardeth found that a pool of Quarath's blood had run off the armour and had gathered at the centre of the underworld as a calm black sea the Sea of Blood. He scooped up a handful, and from that Nardeth created the second Earth people and called them Man, 
the blood. But as Quarath's blood had been spilled in battle and in anger, man was mortal. And so the twin gods share dominion over the worlds, and every day Nerith walks her beloved son across the heavens to bring light and warmth to the earth, and every night Nardeth lifts his pale tear up in the skies so man can find their way in the darkness. I asked Navithian to pause for a little while for me to be able to catch up with his story. I also had to grind more ink and brought out the implements from my shoulder bag. While I did so, Navithian began to hum an old tune that I remembered my mother's mother sing to me. It much endeared me to the old man, as I realised that he is not just an icon to our order and a legend, but also simply a man. A little before I was ready, he continued, but I couldn't bring myself to stop him. I know that these are but fables to most, but as a darai they are the very fabric of my being. Stories run through my veins like blood runs through yours, and now, before those corridors of life get too narrow, the tales spill out of me like wine poured by a man dreaming in the day into an already full cup. For countless times, the Darai have scoured the earth to preserve the memory of man. The first of us are still nameless, but I have read their books, and they are a wonder of knowledge and stories from the earliest of times. These brave men and women would wander the earth, and wherever they encountered man, they would sit with them and listen to their tales. They recorded so many different stories that ventured to explain the powers of nature, the cruelty of mankind, and the wonder that is life. In silence, they would sit with their notebooks that they made from bark or skins and write everything down exactly as they heard. I thought it best not to let the old man know that, as a Darai myself, I did know of these stories, and I was just grateful to be able to record them so they could take their place here in the second library. I still vividly remember the first time I was sent away from the great library, where I had spent ten years learning the languages of the worlds and the ancient runes of the North Kings. I was nervous. What great stories would I record? What insight would I bring back to the great library? but my first notebook, freshly bound in soft goatskin, rested in my travel bag that was slung across my bony shoulder, and that gave me courage. My route had been laid out by the elder and went along the Bannard Valley to take me far into the north. When darkness grew and I could see Nardev's half-full tear rise in the night sky, I came across two travellers by a small campfire. By their clothing, I could deduct that they were from the south, but it was only when I had accepted their invitation to join them by the fire that I realised they were Hasserim. I sense by your breath that you know too well the reputation of these skilled assassins and fully expect this story to end badly, but you, like myself, would be mistaken. When yours is not the name carved into the soft, flat, frallet stone in their pocket, the Hazarene turn out to be more hospitable than the most experienced pleasurer. Not that I would know, of course, but it was the opinion I garnered as I listened to their story. The two men smelled of the sweet wine that comes from the high grounds of the Phalaxian Plateau, so I asked them if that was indeed where they were returning from. They both laughed the hearty laugh of rough men whose reputation and survival rely on how manly they look and sound. 
Exactly the opposite of what makes it possible for a Darai to get all people to open up to them and share their stories. And so the two men told me that they had not been to the Falaxian Plateau, but to Landanil. They had been hired to settle a dispute between two merchants. By merchants they meant purveyors of pleasurers, and by settle they meant that they were to kill one of the two, probably the one who would offer them the least amount of money. But you did not need that clarification, I'm sure. The unfortunate man whose name was on the Freilitz stone turned out to have six hired swords at his side, but even that was not enough to save him from the Hasserine. It occurred to me that you might have less of a chance the more men you hire to protect you, for the Hasserine in front of me, their smiling faces lit up by the fire, seemed to thirst for and be bolstered by such challenges. The merchant who had hired them owned a fox tenor, a house of pleasure in Landonil, and after they had disposed of his rival, that is where the two Hasserine turned up to be paid. Now, this should have been a simple matter, you might think. Well, that is what I thought. But we would both be wrong, for if that was all there was to the story, it would hardly be worth breaking ink in my first notebook for. As it turned out, the rival merchant did not have the money to pay for the fralid, which was a foolish thing. But as the Hasserine lay a sharp dagger to his throat, the panicking thin man made them an offer. I will have the money for you before the next full tear appears in the sky, and until then you will each have a new woman or man to warm your beds every night. The Hazarene are not, and this they pointed out to me in the most serious tone, in the habit of making deals. But the offer was too tempting, and they accepted, but added that he would most certainly not be able to make another deal should this one fail. So, as Nardev's tear filled in the night sky, the two men learned the art of pleasure from a string of pleasurers. They did divulge some of their wisdom, a little too eagerly. Among other things, they claimed to have acquired the ability to taste which province a woman came from, which both baffled and appalled me, and I did not include that in my account. You must remember that I was a very young man then, but no matter. After twelve nights, the merchant was running out of pleasurers, and as the tear was filling and he did not have the money either, he sent only one woman to the two Hazarines' bedroom that night. She was called Elephitis. And when the two men complained about the prospect of sharing her, she announced, There is enough woman in me to pleasure four men. And according to the two Hazarine, who were now giggling like they had smoked the dried leaves from the Yagan Valley, there was. Her breasts, they told me, were larger than sacks of grain, each thigh was the size of a wild boar, and her belly had ripples so big that you, as they put it, could ram your notebook in between them with no hope of ever getting it out of there. While I struggled with the image, the Hazarine fell over laughing. To this day, I am not sure whether they were laughing at me or at her. But, in conclusion, there was indeed enough for the two men. There was, however, also a knife in the sleeve of her tunic, and if one of the two men had not drunk more than he could hold and therefore woke up in the middle of the night, they would not have been sitting there telling me the story. As it turns out, a drunk Hasserine who has just woken up is still too much for even the biggest of women, and Elephitis soon lay dead on the white night sheets.
The two men mused over the fact that she was not only the biggest woman they had ever seen, but also had more blood in her than any man they had ever slayed. Within a few moments, the Hazarene had brought the merchant to the bedroom too, and made him watch as they carved up the huge woman from chin to navel with their legendary Carlian knives. Then they stuffed the screaming thin merchant inside the body and sewed her up again. They placed the macabre display on the steps of the fox tenor with a note that warned anyone not to let the merchant out or face the same fate. They later learned that it had taken four days for him to die and that his cries for help had echoed out of Elephite's dead mouth and had gradually turned into a whimper as her rotting corpse slowly drowned him. At this point, the two men had laughed themselves hoarse, so they gulped down a huge measure of Falaxian wine, which I assume they had stolen from the merchant's fox tenor, and rolled up in their thick caves by the fire. Before I knew it, they were snoring louder than pigs in a pile of mud on a hot summer's day. Inking the end of the story, I had to add to the beginning that neither would you want to be the name on the Fralit Stone, nor be the one who asked for that name to be written on it without the means to pay. Under Nardev's tear, I finished writing my account, and I could not believe that such a gory and cruel story, yet told with such enjoyment, could be the very first to be put to ink in my virgin notebook. Now, of course, I know that there are far worse tales in the Ninth Corridor in the North Wing, but it was a different time then, a different time indeed. And thinking back on that story, I cannot but wonder what might have happened had we had the means to employ such talented craftsmen as the two Hazarene at the Great Library. One thing is for sure. The Darai had learned nothing from the endless tales of war in the fourth corridor of the East Wing, and they fell where the faculty's soldiers found them standing. My first thought was the safety of the Dafar, so I ran through the small passages in between the corridors that only few of us knew how to find. You see, looking down the corridors, the endless rows of notebooks created an illusion of solid, impenetrable walls. But when you explore the wings like I have, you would find little spaces between the shelves just big enough for a man to get through. That knowledge was what saved me that day. Do forgive me that I keep talking about the faculty, as you probably do not even know what they were. But in those days, the five masters were the faculty that oversaw the appointment of the Nomari and their companions. Now, of course, they call themselves the Kanath, the Thought of the Gods, and claim to be the Eye of Justice and the Mouth of Truth, which I must confess still does not ring true in my old ears. Something happened to them that I am not able to explain. Forgive me. My mind wandered again. The old man asked me for some more water, and I went outside to fill the chipped clay cup. Nardev's tear had risen in the sky and bathed the valley below the hills in a pale bluish hue. The silence was beautiful, and I enjoyed a few gulps of the sweet night air before I went back inside the cave. Grateful, Nevithian accepted the clay cup that I gently laid to his dry old lips. The water did him well, and soon he continued his account. Note, can the five Kanath masters be the same five masters of the faculty? To understand what lay behind the actions of the faculty, the Kanath, you have to look back to the story of how the Numari came to be. 
The fair goddess Nerith had built a magnificent palace for the Mari to live in. It was called Nath Tenor, the house of the god, and was the most wondrous place on the earth. The halls were higher than mountains, wider than oceans, and the columns that held the ceilings were made of the purest gold. The gardens that surrounded the palace stretched out as far as you could see, and wherever you would walk there would always be shade and a cool stream to soothe you. The Mari spent their days in conversation with the trees and the plants. The plants would teach them their healing powers, and the trees would tell them of minerals and other treasures deep within the ground that their roots would know of. And the Mari would share their knowledge with each other at huge banquets in Nirith's main hall. One of the Mari had a more curious mind than all the others. He was the last to be formed out of Quarath's final breath, and he was called Ardamed, and he travelled further than any of the other Mari in search of knowledge in the gardens of Naphtenor. It was clear that no one else had been as far away from the palace as him, as the paths became more and more narrow until they were completely taken over by the undergrowth. The trees and the bushes there did not talk to him, and after a while only sinewy coarse grass covered the ground, and Adamet found himself without any shade from Nerith's beloved son. And yet he travelled further until he reached the end of the gardens where a wall blocked his path. The wall seemed higher than the eye could reach, and so smooth that you could use it for a mirror. Adamet therefore returned to Naphtenor with an unsatisfied curiosity that had only grown for each step he had taken toward the palace. He walked right up to the goddess who sat on her throne in the middle of the greatest of the halls and asked to be allowed to go beyond the wall to see what lay there. As a hush sprung from Mari to Mari feasting in the hall, the goddess rose from her golden seat and laid a gentle hand under Adamet's chin. The Mari have what they need within the wall, and what lies beyond need not concern them, she said with a soft voice that still would have made even the fiercest of the Thani's giants obey her. The other Mari returned to their feast, nearest to her throne, and that was the end of the matter. Well, my foreign friend, it would have been the end of the matter had Adamet been a Thani's giant, but as we know he was not, and therefore the matter did not die there. I think also every mother that has ever forbidden a child to do something would know that it would not end there. But I guess Nerith was the first mother in a sense, and therefore would be excused for not knowing any better. And so the very next day Adamet walked into the gardens and sought out the tallest of all the trees, Miffel. If I wanted to climb to the very top of your crown, dearest Miffle, but wish not to be so disrespectful as to step on your branches, how would I achieve such a deed? he asked the giant tree. After a pause in which Adamet ate his midday meal and drank a measure of wine, Miffle answered, You would bid the ivy grow up my side and anchor in my crown, and then you would hoist yourself up with your hands. He said in a voice that sounded like bark crackling in the heat of the summer sun, but Adamet fully understood and thanked the old tree for the very useful knowledge. And the following day he asked for a sapling from the ivy, placed it carefully in his pocket and then wandered off to the wall where he planted the ivy and bid it climb to the top. Now, you might think, but the wall is so enormously tall that it would take many years for the ivy to reach the top, and you would be right. 
But remember that the Mari were immortal, and with immortality comes vast patience. And so Ardamed waited for nearly half a time, until the ivy told him that she had reached the top of the wall. And at that night's feast in Nirith's main hall, Ardamed filled not only his stomach, but also his pockets with food and wine, and the very next morning he arose early and made his way to the wall. The ivy had indeed reached the top, and soon so had Ardamed. He thanked the ivy for her service and bade her unfix her roots, and then cast the ivy over the other side of the wall, slowly lowered himself to the ground, and now stood completely aghast at the world that lay in front of him. This was still the earth, but nothing like what was on the other side of the wall behind him. As far as his eye could see, there was nothing but a barren land scorched by Nerith's relentless sun. He gathered a few dry yellow blades of grass and made himself a hat to get some relief from the heat above, and then he wandered off, determined to explore this new world. After a long while, Ardamed stopped in a small ravine and rested his aching back up against a rock that also provided much-needed shade. He ate the food and he drank the wine he had brought, and then he closed his eyes that had gone dry in the sun. How long he had been asleep he did not know, but he was awoken by a voice that said, Now, what have we got here? The answer stuck in Artemis' throat as he looked into the green eyes of the huge Lathwolf slowly walking towards him. He had never seen an animal, let alone a beast like this before, and fear entered the mind of the Mari for the first time. Retreat was impossible because of the rock behind him, and he wasn't sure how immortality would fare in a fight against this six-legged monster. Just as the lath wolf prepared to attack, a barrage of small stones hit it on the head. Shadows emerged above Ardamed, chanting grunts rose and echoed amongst the rocks, and the attack on the beast intensified. The lath wolf had enough and ran for safety. Ardamed rose from his hiding place and was struck by what met his eyes. A handful of people, only half the size of himself, their skin leathered from enduring Nerith's sun unprotected, their hair coarse and straw-like, and their bodies only covered with small pieces of skin. Their grunts sat at the very back of their throats, and the language they spoke was nothing Ardamed had encountered before, and he understood even the rough thorn bushes in Kari Tenor and was able to hold a conversation with them. But Ardamed was not nearly as struck by the look of the strangers as the strangers were by the look of him. Often, when you encounter foreigners, you measure them by your own standards and completely forget that you are, in fact, the stranger, which over the times has given rise to many a misunderstanding and war. You can imagine the stranger's surprise at seeing this giant rising in front of them, his head crowned by a golden halo, for that was the effect of the sun shining through the yellow grass hat. All the strangers fell to their knees in awe and fear of this apparition. I have read accounts of a people in the furthest region of the south that to this day worships the halo giant. And Mihal the Wanderer has speculated that it is indeed Ardamed that they refer to. Fascinating how these fables lead to different beliefs, even though they spring from the same source. 
forgive me. Ardamed motioned the strangers to stand again, and after a while they did so and motioned him to follow them. They led him through the land and finally into a small valley with a muddy lake in the middle, whose banks bore witness of a time where there had been three times the water in it. And the Mari was shocked by what he saw. Accustomed as he was to the sweet life in Kari Tenor, the food, the drink, the clothes, his mind struggled to process this new world. The strangers lived in small caves, carved into the soft rocks by nature. They washed and drank from the same water, ate roots straight from the ground, and consumed the meat from the animals they managed to catch with their bare hands straight from the bones. At night they huddled together in their caves to stay warm, as they did not know the art of making fire. Four days Artemid observed the strangers and their struggle to stay alive. He witnessed births and deaths that were treated equal and as trivial as breathing, and he never encountered a single stranger who had risen above the toil of simply staying alive. On the fifth day, Adam had said his goodbyes and walked back to the wall, climbed up the ivy and down the other side. In a deep sadness, he passed the trees and plants in the gardens of Nathtenor, and a murmur spread among them, as they had never seen a Mari in a state like this before. Again, Adam had walked through the main hall and only stopped at the base of Nereus' throne. Who are the strangers beyond the wall? asked Adam. They are man. My brother's children, replied the goddess. But if they are his breath, why does he not care for them, demanded the Mari. They have no shelter, no knowledge of fire. They die of disease and hunger and war. They're hunted by six-legged monsters that have never set foot here. And he cares not. Nerith rose from her throne. I cannot tell you my brother's thoughts, she said, and walked to the furthest doorway. But can you not give them what you have given us? Ardemet's bold question stopped the goddess by the door. Slowly she turned, and her eyes were darker than the Mari had ever seen. First, you disobey my wishes and travel beyond the wall, and then you dare ask me for favours. The question echoed in the main hall, and though Ardemet was young, he still knew when to keep quiet, and with his silence the goddess left. But the other Mari gathered around Ardemed and heard his tales of the strangers beyond the wall, and they were moved, and they cried, and they wondered what to do, and Navithian coughed for a long while, and it was clear to me that he did not have long in this world, and yet I could not bring myself to hurry him. I asked him if he needed rest, but he replied that it would be better to continue now that the babbling brook is still running. Note, look up the root of the Ovinian flower for its ability to ease an infected chest in the Notable Healing Plants by Quinton the Longnosed, fourth shelf, back of the lower corridor. The next morning, when Nerith entered the main hall, she was met by all twenty-seven Mari standing in a circle around her throne. She walked up the marble steps and sat down. After a pause, Adamed stepped forward and said, I stand before you, almighty Nerith, keeper of the sun, shepherd of life, and ask that you forgive my disobedience and my too brave behaviour this last night. And Nereth smiled and forgave him. Then the eldest of the Mari stepped forward. She was called Gaiamir, and was the first to step out of Quarath's breath. We have all heard the tales of Ardemet's travels, 
and his encounter with the strangers beyond the wall, and it has moved us deeply, she said in a voice that gently crept up the steps toward Nerith and landed softly on the goddess's ear. We understand that you wish not to interfere with your brother's breath, but we ask that you urge your brother to teach the strangers that which you in your kindness and wisdom has taught us. But the flattery did not make it all the way up the steps before Nerith burst out of her throne. I have not spoken to my brother since the day he killed our father, and I will not do so ever again. Her voice forced a silence to descend on the main hall, and neither Ardemir nor Gaiamir dared speak for a long while. But such was the Mari's concern for what they had heard about the strangers that Gaiamir stepped forward once again. Forgive me, my most just goddess, for my ill-considered suggestion, she ventured and waited for a slight nod from Nerith before she proceeded. In your great wisdom you have given us, the Mari, all that nature can provide, and I ask you, daughter of the god of life, the great Quoreth, from whose breath we were born, will it not be the greatest gift to your earth to let us journey beyond the wall and teach all things living that which you have taught us? But Nerith flew into a rage that Nathtenor had never known. She forbade the Mari to ever set foot beyond the wall, warned them never to mention the strangers or her brother ever again, and then raised the wall to the edge of the sky so no living thing could hope to scale it. The Mari did not feast that evening, but gathered in their night hall to hold council, and the Mari found themselves in an impossible situation. On the one hand, the very knowledge of the strangers and their plight meant that if the Mari did nothing, they would be responsible for the strangers' continued suffering. On the other hand, the Mari owed everything to their goddess, and to go against her will was unthinkable. In the midst of the council, Ardemid walked to the centre of the circle, and the other Mari fell silent. Nerith has forbidden us to set foot outside the wall, and we wish not to defy her. But we came from the breath, and breath travels without feet, he said and looked to Gaimir. After a moment of contemplation, Gaimir spoke and said, We shall once again become breath. And when Nerith's son had done his work, the Mari walked to the foot of the wall. They formed a perfect circle and one by one closed their eyes in deep meditation. And one by one they dissolved into a golden mist and, light as the air, they drifted over the wall and spread out across the worlds to bring Nerith's gift to man. But as Nerith placed her beloved son in the sky the next morning, she soon found that the Mari had gone, and even though the great tree Miffle told her how the Mari had turned themselves into spirits and therefore had not set foot beyond the wall, she destroyed Naphtena with one blast of her anger. The palace crumbled and turned into a mound of dust. The wall sank into the ground and the void it left filled with water from the oceans. Naphtenor is said to have been what we now know as the island of Quor, where you to this day, unless the Kanath have reached that far, will find 27 statues standing in a perfect circle. It is said that it was the first North King who made them, but even though I have not seen them with my own eyes, I suspect they are much older than that. The great fortune I have had to be appointed the elder of the Darai and the great library, 
is also my greatest tragedy, for it has robbed me of the chance to go to these wondrous places and see these mind-boggling sights for myself. Instead, I have had to be content with reading about them in the numerous notebooks that tell of the site where the statues stand. The last mention is in a book by Larsil the Northman, who writes that you can now only see the heads of these magnificent carved statues of the Mari because the rest has been buried by the sands of the times. But, as Larsil describes it, that means you can now look into their detailed carved eyes and even though you know it is but stone, you feel you can see the deep wisdom these legends possessed. What a sight that must be! Yes, indeed. Now it is too late for me. Forgive me. Where was I? I needed a moment to remind myself, as I had been swept away in the story, but looking back at my hurried shorthand notes, I was able to remind him that we were at the point where the Mari had been in council and decided to become breath and scale the wall. Oh, yes. We were talking about Nerith and her destruction of Nathtenor, which brings my thoughts back to the great library. The library is designed in the image of a dragonfly, a favourite of Lagnaril, the wife of the third North King. She had always loved the legend that the dragonfly was a loyal companion of the real dragons that lived in the ancient times. I have read in the first books that dragons did indeed exist and was once great friends of man, but that man turned against them much like what happened to us, here in the time of the dragon, no less. Forgive me, my thoughts are ahead of my tongue. Uh, the four wings each have twenty corridors, and each corridor is longer than ten great Polythian war galleys moored bow to rudder. Was it not for the fire in the huge iron braziers that stand between the ornate bronze doors at the very back of each wing, you would not be able to see the end of them. I shall never forget the musty smell of hundreds of thousands of ink-covered pages that filled each shelf in the corridors. Every time I put my hands to a piece of paper, the scent brings me right back to the very first time I stood at the entrance to the north wing as a young Nuvi, or ink-bearer. Fascinating that smells can do that, transport you through time and space. The sheer scale of the building was almost too much to fathom for a boy who had grown up in a small village where the tallest building did not surpass the oak in the middle of it. Countless are the hours I have spent in this greatest of buildings, and I am sure I have the lack of natural light to blame for the state of these eyes. Trying to translate the often minute writing in the first book's original tongue into that of the North Kings, Having only an oil lamp to light up the pages was at times very painful, and I... Uh, oh, forgive me, my foreign friend, the, the layout of the great library. The four wings lead into the central hall, where my brothers work tirelessly on both translating the notebooks of older times and cataloguing the new notebooks from our brothers out in the world. At the back of the central hall is the tail, our sleeping quarters, and at the head end is an arched doorway that leads into a round dome gallery where my desk would stand guard at the entrance. It is called the Elder Gallery and holds the most important and most ancient of our notebooks. And in the middle of this domed wonder stands the six-sided stone shrine called the Kari Nar, the tomb of the king 
that guards our most sacred book of all, the Dafar. On top of the monument rests a sarcophagus that contains the remains of the third North King, for it was he that built the great library for the Darai to use as a home for our notebooks. The sarcophagus is made of the purest silver, standing on ornately carved ivory lathwolf legs, with one continuous inlaid line of amber orbiting it more than a hundred times. From the line spring little bursts of leaves made of precious green stones, and the effect is a dazzling tribute to the ivy that had enabled dear Ardemet to ultimately bring knowledge to man. Running into the central hall, that night, I asked the few frightened brothers who had gathered there if they had seen soldiers and found that none had been spotted in the north wing. It was then that I took on Nerith's role as destructor and ordered my fellow Darai to block all the entrances to the central hall except that of the north wing. As I listened to the bursts of thunder rolling through the corridors when shelves crumbled to the ground and the notebooks created mountains of paper blocking each wing, my watering eyes found a little refuge in the splendour of the North King's tomb. It reminded me of how lucky we had been with their rule, a rule that might have come to an end that night for all I knew. It also reminded me of the accounts of the funeral customs of the old people of the North. Since the kings came down from the North and created Alathia, we have laid them to rest in elaborate tombs, but in the ancient times it was very different. There is said to have been a sacred lake at the centre of the land in the north called Esper, and when a king died the people would build an island in the middle of the shallow lake. The island would be made out of tree trunks, and for the most popular of the kings there could be thousands of them. When the island was deemed to be at an appropriate size and height, the king's body would be placed on the top of the cone-shaped island. He would be laid there along with a horse, a boar, a wolf, a stag and an eagle. They were believed the most honourable of all the animals and guardians of the noble virtues, strength, courage, respect, honesty and wisdom that the king would need in the next world. These animals, you know, are still pictured on our coins to remind us of those virtues. If I had one I would show you, but alas, all I have is my memory and no one will pay coin for that. Forgive me, the island, yes. At sunset, when all was arranged according to ritual, a flotilla of small boats would set out from the shore to surround the island. A child holding a torch would stand at the bow of each of them and set the island on fire from all around the water's edge. This was all done in complete silence. The beauty of it, almost too much to even imagine. The last rays of the sun Kissing the king one final time, the flames reflecting in the mirror-like surface of the lake, the boats circling the island before returning to the shore. It must have drawn tears from even the most hardened of the king's warriors when it can make my sore old eyes water now. As the flames climbed toward the king's body, a single hornblower on the shore would start a drawn-out one-note melancholic tune, and as the fire reached higher, one by one other horns would join in, some on the same note while others would be layering the tune. Some islands would burn for days and some for much longer, and the tune could be played by hundreds of horns. 
At the height of the burning, the light could be seen far and wide, and when it was spotted, beacons on the mountain tops would be set ablaze to carry the message, the king is dead, to all in the land. The heat from the burning island would make the surrounding water boil, and when it finally imploded into the lake, a huge column of white smoke and steam would rise, and as the horns fell silent and the beacons would be quelled, the people knew there was a new king leading their land. In one of the early notebooks, I read that when the ruler called the noble died, more than 20,000 of his people gathered on the shores of Esper, and they refused to leave until the fire had consumed the entire island and the water had claimed the king's ashes. According to the book, the pyre lasted over half a tear, and in all that time the people had no food but only drank the water of the sacred lake to stay alive. He must have been some king, a worthy leader, noble indeed. Not like the ninth North King, aptly named the Uneven, who was considered, shall we say, an unlikely leader. He once ordered the entire army to the coast of western Alathia, where the remnants of the wild winds from the storm islands made the sea erode the cliffs and the beaches. He made his generals line up the troops along the beach and ordered them to beat back the waves to stop them from invading his lands. The bewildered soldiers marched into the sea and hacked at the waves with their swords. It was a disaster, and many a poor man drowned as they were overpowered by the waves or dragged down by the undertow. The king went wild with anger when their effort did nothing to stop the water's assault and demanded that someone was made accountable. Ten cohort officers were brought to their knees in front of the mad king and he commanded them put to the sword. But then the oldest of the generals rode forward and retreated the soldiers to the shallow water just before the beach. He ordered them to kneel and form a shield wall and, compared to before, Less water seemed to crash onto the sand behind them, and the king was impressed. He ordered his chair-bearers to walk into the sea until only their heads were visible. He stood up, and shouting against the winds, he suggested a truce with the sea god Conchilia, since their armies seemed equal in combat. All the men on the beach that day looked to each other and agreed that their king had finally lost his mind completely. Conchilia was only worshipped by a few isolated island people, you see, so none of the king's soldiers and generals knew who he was talking to. And how the North King even knew of her, I do not know. But miraculously, the winds died down and the sea went calm. The king made the entire army praise Conchilia and build her a Longong temple. But I suspect it was Nerith who intervened that day after taking pity on the soaked and exhausted soldiers. The ninth North King returned to his palace in Cary Tenor and proclaimed that he had battled with the sea god and had returned with peace. The day is still celebrated in the ancient capital, though ironically it is wine that is drunk in huge measures and not water. And speaking of water, I am getting lost in the delta again. Uh, let me return to that day. When the central hall fell silent, I ordered my fellows to make their escape through the north wing. Chamon, the sour-faced, handed me the four keys he had hidden the night before and then ran down the dark seventh corridor. 
I urged my nuvi, called Nanone, a girl of only eleven, to save herself, but she refused to leave. The last to flee was Hardan the Hairless, one of the Darai assigned as the king's scribes, and he was pale as a night sheet that had been soaked in lime water for weeks as he stood there before me. He tore a page from his notebook, an unimaginably desperate thing for a Darai to do, and placed it in the palm of my hand. These are the last words of the 14th North King, he said. Make them safe in the Dafar. He half whispered the words as he scanned the central hall for danger. And his fears weren't disappointed, for at that moment more than twenty soldiers broke through the west wing barricade of shelves and books and headed straight for us. Save the Dafar, yelled Hardan, as he raised his staff over his head and ran toward the advancing soldiers. His incredible courage filled my mind and hastened my steps as Nanone and myself ran to the Karinar to unlock the door. Sweat peppled down my forehead and my hands trembled like poplar leaves in the wind and as I looked up on the inscription above the door, use both hands, I prayed that I would indeed be able to do that when the time came. Then I heard screams behind me. My first thought was that Hardan had read some of the ancient books recorded in the Kalifthapar province and thereby had acquired the talents of the fit. But the screams were from men dying, not moans of men being struck by a staff. So I turned to see what was happening behind me. And there I saw him, the Mari Rai, majestically engaging the elite Kanaf soldiers with his scimitar-like sword, cutting through them with the ease and speed of a swallow hunting for insects sailing through the air, swiftly changing direction to find its prey. He moved so fast that his tunic seemed to leave a blurred trail of blue throughout the hall. And then I caught a glimpse of a younger Marirai that leapt in from the west wing and devastated the Kanath soldiers from behind the defensive line her partner had tricked them into forming. Soon the soldiers lay strewn on the cold stone floor. The two Marirai dislodged more shelves and once again sealed up the west wing entrance. Who are you? I inquired of the imposing figures. Khan said the older, with the same simplicity that marked his fighting skills and without taking his eyes away from the north wing. The younger, clearly Khan's apprentice, simply bowed her head respectfully. Khan turned to me and Nanone with stern eyes and said, You must lock the Dafar. I replied that I would return quickly and that we could then travel north. But Khan stopped me with a strong hand on my shoulder and said, No escape lays that way. I looked to the still open entrance to the north wing, but before I could make out the words that would call his into question, I saw the red plumes emerging out of the darkness. Do what you must, said the Mari Rai, as he sliced the bronze shelves with his sword and a cascade of ancient books fell to the ground and blocked the entrance to the Elder Gallery. I now know that the Kanath had kept back from the north wing on purpose, hoping that we would bring the Dafar out that way, and that the brothers I sent through there did not stand a chance of escaping. What I regret the most about my near blindness is that I cannot see their reflection in the night sky anymore. It is believed, you see, that when our souls take flight after our mortal vessel runs aground, Nardeth will take them to the halls of the underworld. There he will lay them to rest on the banks of the Sea of Blood, 
and they will cast their reflection into the black surface and appear next to Nardev's tear. So, when you look up into the night sky, you will find all those that have gone before, lighting the path for us who have to follow. It saddens me that I cannot see my brothers anymore. A sense of loss I have only felt the day my early travels brought me to the Exiliad Plateau and the forest of the Kiridath, the army of the dead. The trees stand there on the otherwise barren ground like pieces on a chessboard or a dolake gamehide. Hundreds of thousands of them. And buried under each lies a soldier who has fallen in the service of the North Kings through all the times. Over the years, the soldier becomes the tree, and the tree becomes the soldier. It is said that it is the largest standing army in the worlds, and in ancient scriptures that were kept in the Elder Gallery at the Great Library, it is said that the trees would unfix their roots and come to the North King's aid in a time of mortal danger. That it did not happen when the 14th North King died was used by the Kanath to convince the people that even though it was their hands on the rudder of Alathia, it was still the North King's spirit that ruled the lands. I have spent many a time thinking whether Nerith or indeed Nardeth meant that to be the outcome of the Seven-Year War. I have also often wondered how many more of what used to be our own soldiers, Khan and his apprentices, have sent to the plateau. It could be countless, for the Mari Rai were the most magnificent knights among men and women. Their ancient order came to Alathia with the first North King, who gathered the original group of knights to protect the Numari in his empire in the north. The Numari? Was I not supposed... Oh, I have not told you how they came to be. Forgive me, but that is important in the understanding of the matter. Once the 27 Mari spirits had overcome the wall, they spread out across the earth to share their knowledge. But even though they did not need feet to travel, they needed both a voice to enlighten and hands to teach. So each of them sought out a suitable host among the strangers. One by one, the spirits joined with the stranger, and soon all mankind began to enjoy the knowledge that flowed from these teachers. It is said in the legends that Nerith, bent on revenge, came into the worlds to find the Mari. But when she saw the good they did, she relented and gave them their blessing in the form of a mark on the face of the strangers who walked with the spirits. But I think it was the spirits themselves that marked out their hosts so that mankind could know them and seek their help wherever they appeared. In the North King's tongue, they were called Numari, the walkers of the breath and for many times they lived among us and the times were good. But little by little man did what man has always done and sought to exploit the Numari, which is why the North King founded the Mari Rai, the Breath Shepherds, and tasked the faculty with training both the new Numari and the Mari Rai to be worthy of the task that the spirits chose them to do, bring healing, understanding and wisdom to mankind indiscriminate of beliefs, gender and standing. And it was all working until Lord Munford of Dalmarth came into the fray. That man. The darkest of hearts in the darkest of men. But I suspect you know about the evil lord. And that, my foreign friend, brings us back into the blackness of the Karinar, where no sound from the outside could enter, and the only sound within these thick walls was the laboured breaths of two frightened people, 
Nanone, and myself. After a while, I found my way to the torch by the door and ignited it with the fire stones on the shelf next to its holder. Nanone, who had never been inside the Karinar, gasped at the sight of the Dafar sitting on a plinth at the centre of the small room. And I will dare anyone not to gasp, as it is the most thrilling sight you will ever see, even if you are not a Darai. The Dafar itself is protected by a casing made from the hardest metal brought out of the ancient mines from the furthest parts of the North King's homeland. It is absolutely impenetrable, and I defy even a master of underly magic to be able to open it, let alone remove it from the Karinar. The lock that sits on top of the casing is adorned with the relief of a dragonfly made of precious blue, green and yellow stones. In each wing, made out of the finest mother of pearl, is a slot that the four keys fit into. I have mentioned the four keys, have I not? Yes, and each night the four keys were hidden in the great library's corridors, and each morning, when it was time to open the Dafar, they would be brought to me by the two Darai who had hidden them. And every night I would close the casing around the Dafar again, turn the lock, and give the four keys to another pair of Darai for them to hide. Now, you might think it a very elaborate ritual to protect a book, and you would be right, but the Dafar is not just a book. It is the document of truth, just as it is rightly called in the North King's old tongue. Every one of the most significant events in the memory of man and all the most important decrees issued in Alathia are noted in the Dafar. And that is why it has to be protected by all means. And what no one other than the Elder would know is that there is more to the lock than meet the eye. Not only do you have to insert the four keys in the correct order, but there is a fifth element needed for the lock to work. The lock itself is the size of a waistring of a Valaxonian dancer, a good two hands full, as thick as four fingers on a grown man's hand, and is the most opulent piece of jewellery you have ever seen. The golden top has hundreds of tiny pearls half sunk into it, and just above and below the central dragonfly, sit two rows of four diamonds. Most people think of them simply as pure decoration, and magnificent they are, but, and what I tell you now must never be passed on, you see the interlocked hands at the centre of my elder chain here? It has always been thought that they were a symbol of how the elder was the caretaker of the notebooks and the great library itself, that the books were in safe hands, you see. It is also perceived that the inscription, use both hands, above the door to the Karinar, was advice to the elder because the casing was so immensely heavy to open. But that is not the meaning of it. The hands on the elder chain can be parted, and when you place them so each finger rests on a diamond and press down gently, the diamonds give way and the fingers slot into the four holes until the thumb stops them. And that is when the lock activates. Use both hands, you see. The lock sinks into the casing so only the dragonfly can still be seen. What happens then is only known to the ancient northern blacksmiths who made it. You might have noticed that I said the Dafar is encased and not the Dafar was encased. The simple reason is that the Dafar is still in the Karinar at the Great Library. I sense by your breath that you believed I had taken the Dafar with me that fateful day. But think about it. 
Why would I remove it from the one place where it is most safe? Even if the Kanath was able to open the door, they would never be able to open the casing and get to the Dafar. What I did do was to remove the four keys and give them to Nanane. I then ordered her to travel across the worlds and hide them separately. Just as you are right now, I guess, Nanone looked at me with eyes that said, How am I to travel anywhere, Elder, when we are trapped in this tomb? And if you are indeed looking at me like that, you, like her, are in for a surprise. You see, the most honourable architect who created the great library for the third North King had in his wisdom thought of the possibility of a day like this day, and under the floor's seventh flat stone he had himself carved out a tunnel and told no one but the first elder of the great library, not even the king, a secret that has been passed down from the first of the elders to me, the last. I ordered her down the first step, but she turned to me and said, you are not coming. It was a statement, not a question, and a sign of the huge promise she had showed the very first day I met her and chose her to be my newbie. It was clear to both of us that the Kanath eventually would find their way into the crypt and that in order for them not to suspect that anything was wrong, and there seemingly was only one way in and out, they would have to find someone inside. So I gave Nanone the four keys and with a final embrace, sent her down the narrow, slippery stairs in the hope that she would indeed escape the clutches of the Kanath. I can still remember the gust of dark, rank air that surged off from the tiny doorway far down at the end of the vertical shaft that was her lifeline. It made her rough garments flutter, and she looked so much more vulnerable than I had ever seen before. My eyes followed the ghost-like figure until it disappeared into the abyss. Without ceremony, and with Nanone's future weighing heavy on my mind, I dragged the huge flat stone back in its place, and the silence enveloped me once again. Silence is such a great companion. It doesn't interrupt your thoughts, doesn't disagree with your arguments, merely listens. Many find silence unnerving, but I have always found great comfort in its presence, and on that night I found my peace with the worlds, and... Wondered how the twin gods would weigh my soul, what animal they would choose for me. You see, we believe that if Nerith finds that we have lived a good life, she will place our soul in one of the noble animals that I told you are all depicted on our coins in tribute, so we can be revered by the people we have left behind before she sends us to her brother in the underworld. But if she finds that you have led a less than good life, have been unkind and selfish, she will put your soul in a serving animal like a cow, hen or pig, so you can make amends to the people you have wronged in your life by giving them food and labour. How long you serve depends on how bad you have been. Only after this penance will your soul be allowed to find rest by the sea of blood. It was strange, but as I stood there, I did not feel that I had lived all the life that was measured out for me, even with every sign telling me otherwise, and I did not know why. All these thoughts were fractured by huge hammer blows on the door to the crypt. The Kanath had spent the silence well and brought a battering ram to the Elder Gallery. I could not bear the thought that these simple soldiers might eventually tear down the entire tomb, destroy the final resting place of the third North King. 
so I pressed the trigger that opened the door. For a moment, no one moved. The men holding the battering ram simply looked at me, enemies that had hungered to find a way to me like savage wolves on the trail of a wounded prey, but not expected that moment to happen so soon, or like this. Eventually their superior officer barked a command and I was grabbed by several huge hands and dragged out of the crypt. I looked back and saw the stunned expression in the officer's eyes as he looked at the plinth. I must admit I took some pleasure in knowing that this would be as close as any Kanath would ever come to the book itself. What worried me was that one of the soldiers dragging me away ripped the elder chain from around my neck and quickly put it inside his leather breast armour. He was not the kind of man that would know the value of what he had in his possession and would most likely sell it at the local tavern for a mere measure of wine. I tried to memorise his face so that I might find him should I ever come out of this night alive, for without the Elder Chain there was no hope of ever opening the Dafar ever again, and I do pray to Nerith every new morning that the day will come when it can be opened. I will not bore you with what happened in the following days. If you could go to the Great Library, you would find an ample description in a book by Borif the Dark One titled The Art of Loosening the Tongue. But eventually the Kanath tired of my unwavering ignorance of where the four keys were. The five masters raided the library for any writing on the subject and ordered me to be hung in an iron cage from the domed archway in the Elder Gallery as a warning to any Darai that might try to come here. Not that any survived. I hear that you scratch your short hair or beard. Would it be because you ask yourself how it is that you can now talk to me when I was caged with no food and water more than a quarter of a time ago? Well, one night when I thought I would not see the day ever again, I heard a scraping, rattling sound from the lock and chains at the bottom of the cage. My eyes had by then got used to the darkness, and I instantly recognised the face that looked up at me from the opening. A few cuts on his left cheek, but still as calm and majestic as I had remembered him from the battle in the library. He lifted me out of the cage and gently sat me up against the doorway. To my surprise, he took off my tunic and clad me in a rough caftan-like garment, it smelled like the two hasserine I had encountered so many years earlier, and he must have got it from traders from the south. In a blur, I saw him dress a body of a man in my tunic and place him back in the cage that he locked. Then he carried me out through the east corridor. We passed a fair few more bodies that I assume he had produced on his way in, and one of them seemed strangely familiar. I strained to work out why, but before I knew it, we were out in the open. The Kanath had erected a camp on the steep earth ramp that led from the valley below to the entrance, and huge clay pots with roaring fires in them stood lined up along the road. Khan carried me past the first, but suddenly changed direction, and we both slid into the ditch by the road. When I looked up, I saw a Kanath soldier walk toward the nearest huge clay pot. He threw what he was carrying to the ground. I assumed it was firewood and began to feed the flames. Only moments later I realised what he was feeding to the all-erasing fire. Notebooks. 
what one hand discarded into the greedy flames in seconds. Another had travelled a thousand miles across the world and worked for countless hours to preserve for us all. The thought shattered my heart into a thousand pieces. I knew that our days of knowledge and freedom were numbered and that the Darai would bear the full brunt of whatever the faculty had done. Khan brought me to a safe place and asked that I stayed hidden until he could make sense of what had happened. Before he left, he pressed something into my hand. It was my elder chain. And suddenly, the face of the dead man on the cold, dark stone floor in the great library made sense. I have not seen Khan or, indeed, his apprentice for the longest time. Like me, I fear they are fighting a losing battle to understand why the faculty turned against their own, why the Numari or the Marked Ones, as they are called now, turned against the people, and why... why? Well, now you know what happened on that fateful day in the Great Library at Cowrie Tenor. What followed is a story for another time. As you can hear, I am still, myself, trying to figure it out my ageing mind permitting. But one thing I know is that the Seven-Year War changed everything. The lines between good and evil blurred, and what was once the purest white is now the hue of morning fog. I am no politician and do not pretend to know matters of state, but having been an observer to it all, I fear that the faculty was not immune to the poison that had once consumed the goddess Elidna and brought about the destruction of the gods. Only this time it brought about the destruction of the Mari. The key to it all is encased in the Defar. Of that I am sure. I never had time to read the last words of the 14th North King, but simply placed the torn page from Hardan's notebook in the Defar just before I locked it. So I cannot tell you what his dying words were, and neither can I give you any clues to where the four keys to the lock are hidden. But what I can give you is my elder chain, my blessings for your journey, and the advice that has been given to all the elders of the Darai at the entrance to the Karinar throughout the times. Use both hands. Navithian handed me his elder chain and closed his milk-white eyes. Soon the regular sound of his breath told me that he was sleeping. I could not help but wonder what he would think could he but see the network of tunnels we have built here in Danarchia the few notebooks resting on the simple wooden shelves and the smell of damp rock lingering in those low underground corridors is far removed from the splendour of the great library. But it is a start. I also wondered what he meant by my journey, as I had not said anything that would lead him to conclude that I was going anywhere. As my thoughts found their way to my notebook, I felt a gentle hand rest on my ink hand. I turned my head to the old man in the bed, Slowly he opened his eyes, looked at me, and whispered, There is a prophecy by Larsil the Northman that tells of a young Numari that will rise out of the darkness and return the twenty-seven to the worlds. Find that Numari, and you will find what you need. With that Nevithian drew his last breath on this earth. I folded his hands across his chest and prayed that Nerith would soon weigh his soul and grant him rest by the sea of blood. I walked out of the library, drew a thankful gulp of fresh cold air, and looked up at the blue sky. Circling high above the hills of Danarchia, my eyes caught sight of a huge, majestic eagle. My heart jumped.
Navithian. And just like that, it was all clear to me what my purpose in the worlds was to be. I am Pathar, one of the last of the Darai, the new holder of the hands, and I will find the four keys and open the eyes of Alathia. So help me, Nirith.